Hello, and welcome to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Welcome back. This week on the pod, a wonderful documentary about Rolling Stones keyboardist and musical director Chuck Lavelle, more keyboards in the form of new music from a fan of the pod who I'm also a fan of. We have UK teens reading books this week in strange podcast guest requests, listener film suggestions, and more, all on this week's Full Cast and Crew podcast. So let's get started, shall we? I'm going to start by playing you a track from Canyon Crow's new record, Hauntology. I'm so into this record. This is a guy who has followed the podcast on Instagram, and I've followed him in return. I don't really know much about him at all, but he makes amazing keyboard 80s Vangelis inspired music that is just totally captivating. It's cinematic. It's emotional. I'm totally into it. This is a track called Interceptor, which I really like, which has this kind of Los Angeles car chase gnat sound over a Blade Runner-esque 2049 motorcycle and these incredible, sweeping, Vangelis-like keyboard washes. I'm totally into it. You can follow him on Instagram at Canyon Crows. All I really know is based from his Bandcamp bio, which says that Canyon Crows is the moniker for Edinburgh-based electronic musician Stu Brett. His music blends elements of analog-era synth with cassette-warped funk, which is such a perfect descriptor for this music. So I'm totally into this album. Uh, If you are looking for something to put on that's going to give you that vibe of that kind of Blade Runner-esque 80s Vangelis thing, but in a completely contemporary and melodic setting, I can't recommend this record enough. Canyon Crow's Hauntology. I listen on Spotify. You can probably get it somewhere else. So check that out uh, when you need some fresh new music. An additional recommendation I'm going to make is a documentary I just watched. I just went to a big television industry conference in France that I've gone to most Octobers, but I haven't been in three years given the pandemic, which is crazy. And it's one of those industry things. A couple of days before leaving, I always ask myself, why am I doing this? Why am I going? Is this worth it? Going all the way to France for meetings about content and shows And it's the kind of thing that once you get there, you wish you had extended your trip by a day because you forget how many people, or at least I've forgotten how many people I know in this business that I've been in for, God, 17 years running Meeting House and another, geez, could be another 10 on top of that. But it, uh, it was incredible. And anyway, one of the things that happened was on the plane on the way back, you know, I'm watching, I've got like an eight hour flight. 
So I'm watching a lot of music documentaries, anything that's available on the plane. And this, uh, this film, uh, came up in my, you know, my little seat back player. And it's a guy that I'd heard of, but I didn't know much about. His name is Chuck Lavelle. He's a keyboard player and he has been in the music business. Sorry, I'm still playing Canyon Crows here in the background. Let me, <laughs> let me knock that out. Uh, my Spotify player needs to close. Okay. Uh, another plug for Canyon Crows right there. Anyway, what? <laughs> okay, he's taken over. He's infiltrated. Stu. Okay, there we go. That's how good it is. I'm telling you, fall into the world of that album. Put on some headphones. You're going to space out. Anyway, Chuck Lavelle, the tree man. This guy is amazing. He is a legendary keyboard player. And you're going to hear in this trailer that I'm going to play you that he's played for the Stones. Chuck Lavelle is one it's of John Mayer. the finest, most daring, classiest, brilliant, most colorful architects of the piano and other keyboards in the last 40 years. Chuck was selected as the National Tree Farmer of the Year. He's also a tree farmer. Just absolutely <laughs> were attracted to Chuck. Not because he was a rolling stone or a rock star, but because you could tell here was a forest landowner who really cared about his forest, his neighbor's forest, the forest throughout the state of Georgia. He's just a human being that you think doesn't exist anymore. One of the most soulful. Clapton, Billy Bob Thornton. And he played with the Allman Brothers. For me, uh, it's really a love story. And he chokes up here because he's been married to his wife for 47 years throughout his entire incredible history in touring yeah, rock uh, music. 46 years now we've been together. 46, okay. The girl's been mighty good to me. <laughs> it's amazing to me that he can live that kind of life. Eric Church. In that kind of place. He's in David Gilmore's well, touring band. To the other party comfortably now is always a problem. I'd say he was a, he's done it about the, the best of anyone that I've had doing that. The man's a gentleman. And of course. The man's a real man. If you don't know that voice, I can't help you. You know, and I don't think I can say anything better about any guy in the world. Firing up a smoke, smoking in every hotel room. You get me? I get you, Keith. Mm. Yep, he played on that song too. Anyway, this is a great documentary film. It's directed by Alan Farst. And if you can find this movie, uh, I think you can get it on YouTube. It's really, really worth it. What I what I love about it is you may know from listening to the pod. I read innumerable rock biographies. I watch pretty much every rock documentary, music documentary, documentaries about labels, producers. I absorb all of this stuff. And it's very rare that you have a story like the one here with Chuck Lavelle, where this is not a story of someone who threw their talent and their life and their relationships away for drugs and alcohol and stardom. 
In fact, you have quite the opposite. You have a guy who managed to be a part of touring rock and roll acts for more than 50, 60 years. And who's not only still alive and thriving, but has a relationship intact and has an entire other life managing this forest that he lives on in Georgia and where he is equally as revered and well-known for his forestry skills and his commitment and dedication to uh, the environment as he is in the world of rock and roll music. And as you can hear from the talking heads, Clapton, John Mayer, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Bonnie Raitt, on and on and on, Bruce Hornsby, he is a soulful and amazing melodic piano player. And you'll watch this documentary and realize you've been listening to Chuck Lavelle your whole life without probably really knowing it. And I really just enjoyed it. I thought it was just a, a very worthy, positive skewing rock documentary. So I want to recommend that to the listeners. How about something I don't recommend? Have you seen the new Ant-Man? Questions. Scott, you're at X-Con. How are you an Avenger? Okay, the new Ant-Man and Wasp trailer is out. Look, maybe you're a big Marvel fan. If you are, you probably don't listen to the pod. I'm just going to say that. I think most of the people who listen to this podcast probably, you know, might enjoy going to a Marvel movie now and again. But in general, you're probably looking for things more like story, character, uh, directorial flourish, editorial knowledge, proper scoring, acting ability, storytelling, you know, the basics. But here again, we have one of these. That doesn't make sense. Marvel trailers now. Everywhere I go, people tell me. I love Paul Rudd. Thank you, Spider-Man. Everyone's freaking out, or at least some people that I really admire on Twitter, like Dave Itzkoff, are freaking out because uh, I think the "I think you should leave" guy is in the trailer uh, from that famed comedy series. So that seems to be getting the most buzz on the trailer, which I guess is a very astute part of the marketing on behalf of Marvel in, in making this movie appeal to whatever segment of the Marvel population is interested in it. People still need help, Dad. That's why we made this. And then... It's like a satellite for deep space, but Quana. Wait, wait a minute. You're sending a signal? Also, I guess Michelle Pfeiffer is is Ant-Man's mom now? I, didn't, I missed that. I didn't see the second movie. Michael Douglas is in the back here looking like a very wizened, aged Jon Stewart. Down to the quantum realm. Not the quantum realm. Turn it off. Now. Now. Oh boy, they went done done it. They invited something from the quantum realm into the garage. And who started the thing with the classic rock songs reinterpreted for comic book movie trailers or every movie trailer, every action movie. Who started this? And why is it effective? Because goddammit, it is. It's a secret universe beneath ours. No way, really? What are you so afraid of? Going to see this movie? There's something I never told you. Let me guess. There's something I never told you about your past. Oh, God. It isn't what you think. See, everything you think is what it is is actually something else. 
And Bill Murray's in it. Okay, that's great marketing. Good timing, Marvel. That's going to work out really well with the stories coming out recently. Anyway, that's a few things that I've been <laughs> thinking about. I wanted to get some viewer mail this week. I don't really have a full film that I'm going to be doing, but I wanted to catch up on some of the missives that have been sent the way of the pod. And if I'm uh, reading your email here, I'm protecting your identity by just using your first name because I didn't ask your permission. But hey, you emailed a podcast. What the hell did you think was going to happen? Here's the first one. This is from Jeremy in the UK. Dear film friends, which is a great way to start a missive to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. Due to your podcast, I've just watched Heat and Over the Edge. Let me interject here and say that if you haven't listened to the episodes about Heat and Over the Edge, please do. Both really good episodes that I'm super proud of. My friend Rick Brown joined me on Over the Edge. Back to Jeremy's email. Despite being a film fan, my friends and me always find out there are shocking gaps in all our watched lists. And I guess at the time Heat came out, there was so much promotion of it in the UK. It had kind of turned me off seeking it out. But obviously I enjoyed it massively and likewise your podcast. Well, Jeremy, let me tell you, birds of a feather here, because if you listen to the pod, you know that I am also completely susceptible to turning off to something just because everyone's talking about it. And I've often shot myself in the foot accordingly. I think of the White Lotus as a great recent example where it was just too much buzz, too much conversation about it. And I couldn't bring myself to see it. And then of course, a year and a half later, I sat down. I just thought it was absolutely brilliant and worth everyone's time. Back to Jeremy. But the real find is over the edge. And I agree with your podcast's high opinion of it. Hope you get some kind of thrills thinking of someone like me having the pleasure of watching it for the first time due to your much appreciated podcast. Well, Jeremy, yes, I do. That's what it's all about right there. I mean, the whole point here is if I'm talking about something that you haven't seen and I somehow or my guests somehow inspire you to check it out and you get something out of the movie, that's a win for both of us. I'm so thrilled and thankful that you took the time to tell me that that was your experience. Jeremy continues, it's strange. I'm a 53-year-old Brit, so we have that weird additional layer of affection for American-made films of our youth. Because it was like, as film, TV, pop culture fans, we had two lives. Our British milk bottles, pubs, and small back-to-back houses lives, and our American pop culture lives slowly making sense of high schools, highways, and all your vast social, cultural, and political geography, one film or TV show at a time. So even a bad film can be revealing for us of some location or a uniquely American social dynamic. As a 13-year-old kid with a black-and-white portable TV in my room, I'd watch pretty much any film new to me on TV. And late at night, there were often independent American films week after week, Suburbia, Smithereens, Times Square, Union City, Out of the Blue, Tilt, all really emotionally impactful films for a young teenager, and weirdly often about young people surviving through some awful but character-building circumstances. I just shiver at how much the 13-year-old me would have resonated with the legitimate teen angst in Over the Edge, as I found it a meaningful watch at 53. P.S. I have an abiding memory of seeing a Hoop Dreams-style documentary film in the 80s that was extremely long and was about everyday life in a typical American town or high school. I remember the teenage member of the main family was in a marching band. And the documentary was called something generic like Small Town USA or Main Street America, but with such a vague memory, other than it being four hours, I can't even find it with all of my best Googling arms. Help yours sincerely, Jeremy. 
Well, first of all, again, Jeremy, thank you so much. That's an incredible letter. And I replied to Jeremy at the time because, of course, he was speaking my language with that long-forgotten documentary film question. I mean, I've had so many things like that with books and with movies. Um, I'm trying to think of the most recent one. There was there was this book that I read as a young kid, probably in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And I'm going to have to Google it again because I've forgotten it. But um, what's his name? The, the only reason I, re, I this, there was, there was one of those things where you're kind of like, did I actually read a book that has these components or did I sort of dream this and somehow uh, forget, you know, that it was a dream and that it wasn't actually real. So there was this book that I'd read and it sort of had something like a kid whose parents were missing or was gone and he was sent to live with an uncle who was a magician and it had all of these kind of elements that as I've done the pod for all these years, I've now realized like all these movies and books that I responded to as a kid were sort of in some way mirroring some aspect of my young life or things that I was dealing with. And I'd searched for this book. I'd even, I think, paid money. There's like a website that helps you find old books that you can just barely describe. I tried that. That didn't work. And the only way that I found it was that in 2018, they started playing uh, a trailer for this Jack Black movie. Last stop, Lewis. I'm your Uncle Jonathan. The house. Are you wearing a robe? With a clock. It's a kimono. In its walls. Here we are. Home sweet home. And all of a sudden, the mystery was solved. That's the book I read. And uh, I think Eli Roth directed this movie which by the way, I haven't seen because I don't know. I think I want to read the book again first and go from there. Anyway, so Jeremy's email got me thinking, I'd love to figure this out for him. How did I figure it out? I don't even know. I, I did some research of the type I typically do. I wish I could remember because I got this email a few months ago. But the film that he's talking about, we believe... And the minute I sent him this, he said, yep, that's it. It's from an episode of a multi-part documentary of Muncie, Indiana, directed and produced by Peter Davis. And it's called Middletown. And you may have seen this um, because it was broadcast on PBS in 1982. And I think the episode he's talking about was called 17, which was sort of about the teenage life of Muncie. And apparently it was cut from the spring 82 PBS release, quoting from the New York Times, quote, reasons were said to include the use of profanity, incidents of pot smoking and drunkenness. And most controversially, the filmmakers focus on an interracial romance, end quote. In other words, High school, 1982. You know, we weren't, I guess we weren't ready to have that on the small screen. But this is really worth checking out if you can find it somewhere. Uh, this is what Jeremy was talking about. So here you go. Send full cast and crew your filmic mysteries, and we will aim to solve them for you. Okay, next up was an email from Chris who says, Good evening, Jason. Good evening, Chris. Not Chris Chris, my former co-host. I don't believe. 
Although it'd be funny if it was. First and foremost, thank you so much for the podcast. My point of entry was a search for any podcast I could find that had an episode on the Bad News Bears. Not only did it completely scratch my nostalgic itch, it was also very informative and hilarious as well. I've been an avid listener ever since. Your meticulous pre-show preparation and boundless passion for the medium is supremely appreciated. I'm coming to the end of one of your previous book mentions, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, and it has been fantastic. Would you happen to have any other suggestions that may be in a similar vein? Thank you again, and have a great night. Chris, awesome email. Bad News Bears, great episode. Did that with my friend Bernie Kaminsky. Huge baseball guy. Uh, Really amazing movie to revisit. And I'm so glad to hear that someone listens to one episode and then they become an avid listener. That, again, is part of the hope and the hope and the pray here. So Chris requested some good books, and I suggested a few, which I'll mention to you here in case you're interested in reading good film books of the sort that I think the Full Cast and Crew podcast would recommend. First one I recommend is called The Big Goodbye. It's the story of the making of the film Chinatown. This is interesting to me because at first I really disliked this book. I picked it up. I started reading it. And the author's prose, um, let me get his name. I'm going to mention you something funny about the sound of me typing. Oh, Sam Wasson. His prose at the beginning was a little too purple or stylized for me. And it kind of turned me off because I don't really like a lot of gilding of the lily in my sort of film history books. I just kind of want the story. I don't really need the author's layer of prose on top of that. But once I got past that, uh, it's a brilliant book and it's indispensable. I'm going to do Chinatown on the pod. And when I do, I'm probably going to reach out to Sam Wasson and see if I can get him to come on because the book is that good. And similar to that book, one of the best books I have ever read about um, Hollywood is a book with a bit of a sad history. It's called West of Eden, An American Place. And this is an oral history of a certain time in growing up in Los Angeles. And it's based out of Gene Stein's family who had this, um, this huge sort of presence in and were surrounded by all of these important people who who helped found and create Los Angeles of today. And it's also kind of her story, and it's the story of the city, it's the story of Hollywood, and it's an incredible book. It's a, it's an almost, it's a very difficult to define book, and of course, as such, I, I love it all the more because of it. And I mentioned the sad part of it because the author, Jean Stein, I believe took her own life and committed suicide by jumping from her Manhattan apartment in 2017. She was 83 years old. Uh, but this book is an incredible testimony to her life and her um, just her ability to really unpack something as thorny as Hollywood history and to do so in both a sentimental and unsentimental way, if that makes any sense. So I really recommend West of Eden by Gene Stein. Um, I've done an episode on the next book, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. Um, That's a great book. I've got an interview with the author on the podcast you can check out. Same thing for Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, which is a really good making of the Mad Max film. I also interviewed the author 
of that. And I thought Robert Altman's uh, uh, oral history of Robert Altman was great. It's called Altman, I believe. Again, I'm going to be pissing off one very specific person with the sound of my typing. And I will, uh, I'll tell you that story in a second because it's pretty funny. Uh, Mitchell Zukoff wrote the book Robert Altman, The Oral Biography. I was never a huge Altman guy, and I'm still really not, although I do genuinely appreciate the brilliance of a handful of the many, many movies that he was involved with. But this book is amazing for also the portrait and the snapshot of Hollywood at the time and all of the people that populated Altman's world. And he just, I love a great oral history, and this is an amazing one. It has so many of the important people who were involved in the controversies and the successes and the failures. And it's a really complete portrait of a fascinating time. So anyway, those are a few of the books that I recommended. If you're ever looking for any recommendations on anything, please feel free to reach out either on Instagram or Twitter or email. You can find all this stuff um, anywhere that you find the Full Cast and Crew podcast. You can find my contact information. Please do reach out. Those are some books. Uh, okay. The next one is from Tom, who messaged the pod and said, Hey, man, I'm late to the party, but just stumbled upon your podcast this morning and totally concur with the notion of Chernus as JG. Now, how to get Scorsese the memo before he blows this thing? This is great because you may have remembered that there was an announcement some months ago that, what's his name? Jonah Hill was going to play Jerry Garcia in a Martin Scorsese biopic about Jerry Garcia. Now, probably the subject I know the most about is The Grateful Dead and its history, its music. Um, I spent a lot of time in the universe of The Grateful Dead, not that you'd really know it listening to the pod, but uh, when this was announced, I think like many people, I had a reflexive kind of like, what? Jonah Hill. That has mitigated somewhat. I did see him talking a little bit about this, and I actually thought that he did manage to, to hit a little bit of something that, uh, that I was interested in. But uh, having the experience of uh, being fortunate enough to know Michael Chernus, the actor who you may know from Severance most recently. He's Rick and Hale, the self-help author, brilliant, hilarious, touching, and human performance, which avoids caricature in a character that could otherwise be one or two dimensional. Um, so I thought he was such a better choice to play Jerry because Michael Chernus has that sparkling wit that Jerry Garcia had in conversation. And, you know, that's got to be there. It's not an impersonation. And I think that's part of what I think could be good about someone like Jonah Hill. Um, but Chernus has that. Like, he has that thing that's so hard to cast. So kudos to you, Tom, for agreeing with me. And here's John writing in a helpful note. You know it's Deckard and not Deckard, don't you? I'll go back to my metal five disc set now. <laughs> I love this comment because there's so much contained in so few lines here, John. You did quite a great job. Um, I do know that it's Deckard. And in fact, I think I got in trouble. I think people were giving me a hard time for saying Deckard in relation to Blade Runner. And I had listened to so many of the making of materials that I started saying Deckard, 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 because that's what Rick Ridley Scott says in all of these promotional materials. But I must have written it wrong in a post. And of course, being the internet, somebody, 
well, not just somebody, John here, singled me out for writing Deckard instead of Deckard. Yes, I do know. Now, the most brilliant thing is that he goes, he says, I'll go back to my metal five disc set now, which after sort of calling me out, he kind of brilliantly sends up himself because if you own the five disc Blade Runner Ultimate Collector's Edition briefcase, because that's what it is. It comes in a briefcase and it includes, what does it include? Five discs (laughs) with... Uh, let's see, let's count the editions. Ridley's final cut version of the film, which is the one that Bruce Edwards and I did in our excellent Blade Runner episode. It includes the 1982 theatrical version, which is the US moviegoing audience version, which contains the narration and has the happy ending scene between Deckard and Rachel. It contains the 82 international version, This contains just some extended action scenes. It contains the 92 director's cut, which omits the narration, removes the happy ending, and adds in the famous unicorn sequence, which ends up contributing to the suggestion that Deckard 2 may be a replicant. And it includes disc five, which is maybe the reason to get it, the work print version. This rare version of the film is considered by some to be the most radically different of all Blade Runner cuts and includes an altered opening, no Deckard narration until the final scenes, no unicorn sequence, no Deckard and Rachel happy ending, and altered lines between Roy Batty and his creator, uh, Tyrell, alternative music cuts, and more. That's kind of interesting. I haven't seen that. I'd like to check that out. So anyway, John having that, kudos to you, bro. I think I might need to get my own five-disc Ultimate Collector's Edition briefcase and carry it around like you do proudly, John, and I will never make the mistake of typing Deckard again. Okay, now I have a, a new category here of things I'd like to talk about, which is called weird guest requests. Like when you have a podcast that does moderately well, you know, and we've talked in, I guess I talked in my um, How to Pod episode, how you can gauge success, but basically you know, full cast and crew has enough of a footprint of downloads where I get a lot of weird requests for things that have nothing to do with the podcast, but they're written in this kind of style as if this person is a huge fan of what we're doing, even though they're sort of like, Hey, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. And I think you should collab with us on our new makeup line. You know, it's like, you're just clearly spamming thousands of podcasts and hoping that somebody responds. But there's also a new funny, weird version of this, which is people pitching me guests to come on the show, which who have some admittedly tangential filmic connections, which however tantalizing, I just reflexively feel like I can't do. So here's one that came from April. Hey, I've got a few great guests to pitch you. One, Jeffrey Bryan was in the original Karate Kid movie. He had to audition for the role, has some great background stories as well as his own career. He's now in the 80s band Survivor who had the theme, uh, who, had, who had the then moment for truth for Karate Kid. I don't know, must be a song of Karate Kid. As you may know, one of, the bl- one of the blind spots, I've never seen Karate Kid. So I don't know who Jeffrey Bryan is. Uh, kudos to you, Jeff, for playing in Survivor, for being a sur- survivor. But I'm afraid an incidental background appearance in Karate Kid probably doesn't make the cut, but yeah, you never know. She also pitched me Jude Gold, 
who currently tours with Jefferson Starship. Uh, they would both love to be guests. Now, this would be one thing if these guys were like diehard fans of the podcast. Like, okay, maybe we would do it. But uh, I get pitches like this. Um, I also got one from an actor named Kyler who wanted to reach out and introduce myself as well as let you know that I am more than interested in your upcoming projects, being a part of them. Attached to will find my acting profile and my headshots. Lastly, I'd love a chance to audition and show you what I can do. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you for your time. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Kyler, Los Angeles-based actor and entertainer. Kyler, I feel for you, brother. Believe me. I was just reading something about, uh, there was some kind of story that had uh, the reference to mimes working at SeaWorld. And the phrase SeaWorld mime just broke my heart for hundreds and thousands of actors for whom these are steps that end up uh, getting taken en route to the belief of stardom, the belief of, of success in this most impossible of all entertainment careers. So Kyler, I feel for you, um, but I'm not sure what you'd be auditioning for. Um, you want to audition for a part in the podcast? Yeah, we don't really do that, but you know, hey, if we ever get into some sort of fictionalized versions of things, You'll never know. Here's the weirdest one I saved for last. This is from Peter. Hey, full cast and crew podcast. I hope you're good and safe in these weird times. A lot of these emails start this way, kind of like trying to bridge some kind of common ground, I guess. I really like your style. So I just thought I'd reach out. (laughs) My style personally, like I don't think I've even ever posted an image of me on any of the social media relating to the podcast. So, hey, appreciate that, Peter. I would love to see you sport my brand T-Post, the world's first wearable magazine. Yes. I'm thinking and was thinking the exact same thing you're thinking right now. What? What the F is a wearable magazine? So if you like it, just hit me right back and I'll hook you up with a free T-shirt slash magazine so you can try us out for real. (laughs) I don't know. You know, it's intriguing, Peter, but do I want to wear a magazine? Probably not. Um, I'll probably let, I'll let that take off in the counterculture. Here's another one. I get a million of these. These are sort of like marketing emails. Dear full casting crew, I hope this finds you well. Thank you. This is from Mel. I'm Mel. One of the founders at Owl Tail. <laughs> and we've broken down what the best podcasters do to grow and acquire new listeners and help other pop, 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 pop. Okay. Millennial businesses, owl tail. What are we going to call it? I don't know. Uh, tree frog foot. Skunk nape. Um, ooh, owl tail. Do owls even have tails? When I think of an owl, I don't think of a long protruding tail like a blue jay. I think of sort of a squat kind of bunny-like body. I've never even seen that they have tails. Maybe that's part of the name. It's like, yes, owls have tails. Didn't you know? This podcast is cool. Didn't you know? Anyway. Not going to be signing up for Owl Tail anytime soon. Um, oh, I get also requests to 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 wear a brand of watches while recording the pod. I don't know how that quite works. Um, <laughs> wasn't any brand of watch I'd ever heard of, or I probably would have done it. Skincare items again, probably barking up the wrong tree. I get clothing you know, all kinds of crazy shit. So if you want to get inundated and take advantage of a bunch of these people, you should start a podcast. 
Uh, just a couple more. Um, this is from Greg. Hey, Jason, just listened to the last unicorn episode. I was excited to get this email. This is me talking, not Greg, but I was excited to get this because the last unicorn is one of those episodes I'm really, really proud of. I thought Chris and I did a great job kind of going deep into the making of this extraordinarily bizarre film. And I'm so delighted that anyone particularly responded to it that I plucked this out of uh, the email pile to read in the hopes that if you haven't listened to the last unicorn episode, do check it out. Anyway, back to Greg. I was delightfully surprised to hear sub to hear the subject mentioned. I'm 20 years your senior, and I've been a brother Theodore aficionado since a teenager. One big difference, you saw him on Letterman. I saw him in the 60s on the Merv Griffin show. Again, love the show. Don't forget about Banshee. Thanks, Greg. Wow, he's 20 years my senior. I guess that means my target demographic for an audience is between the ages of uh, 53 and 73. So, okay, I'll take it, man. Listen, one listener at a, at a time. Banshee he's referencing is, it's come up a couple times. People have mentioned this. Um, I'm not really sure whether they're talking about, isn't there a TV series of this recently? Is that what he's talking about? I, I don't know. I've got to investigate this. I haven't watched Banshee, but it, it's been mentioned a bunch of times. And Greg must have mentioned it in a, in a previous email. So if you if you watch Banshee and you love it, write me and let me know if I should really bother checking it out. It looks like there's four seasons. I can't I can't get into this lightly. So if it's really good, um, then I'll be interested. Here's a great uh, here's a great message from Brandy. Why was Neil Bledsoe given a costume a size too big for him? Now I'd have to look up. Neil Bledsoe is a Canadian actor. He has been in The Man in the High Castle. I'm trying to think. Has he been in anything we've done on the podcast? Uh, No. That's the strange part of this particular email. So he has not been in any film or television show reference, but according to Brandy, she has a question. Why was he given a costume a size too big for him? The neck, shoulders, and waist did not fit. The costume the king wore fit him perfectly. I wanted to take it and fit it properly. I wanted to take it and fit it properly. I may be old, but details are important. A real prince would never show up in something that didn't fit. Not fair to the actors. Neil Bledsoe shouldn't have been fitted properly like the king. I'm not complaining, just an observation for future reference. We noticed these things. I enjoyed the show and it was great, except for the poor attention given to the main actor. God bless. Stay safe. Boy, I wish I... I wish I was deserving of this email and could in any way claim credit to have inspired you to write it. But I'm afraid I've never done any film or project and I'm looking through his IMDb page just to make sure that I'm not in the wrong here. But yes, Brandy, uh, I'm so sorry to report we have never done any Neil Bledsoe projects, but I do agree that wearing a uh, ill-fitting costume is one of the most degrading things you can do to an actor. And I, I think it's important that you are pointing this out. And I thank you for your attention to the matter. Here's a few suggestions. I've got a lot of suggestions about films that uh, we might want to do on the pod. I just wanted to run some of these by you. This is from uh, Bernie, not my friend Bernie Kaminsky, I don't believe. He says, hi, love your podcast. How about doing one on the island of Dr. Moreau with Brando and Kilmer? Lots of insanity, chaos, and confusion behind the scenes. In a word, Bernie, yes. 
Um, huge fan of the documentary about the making of this film. Huge fan of stories about Crazy Brando, as sad as they can sometimes be. Huge fan of Kilmer. Uh, and an unfortunate fan or, I guess, uh, moth attracted to the flame of stories about Kilmer bad behavior, because those exist too. But yes, this is a ripe disaster. Um, and there's a fascinating, fascinating document. One of the best film documentaries you'll ever watch is about the collapse of this movie. Um, and again, the sound of typing will piss off one of the people that you hear about, but I wanted to, you know, it's not as if I sit here and I have like the exact titles of a hundred thousand things in my head at every time. So I'm sorry, dude, that I'm who I'm about to reference later in this episode about, you know, having to type some things like, yeah, I guess I could know that I'm going to mention or reference some of these things and do a little bit of the extra work, but Hey man, I got a life. I got a kid. I got a job. I got a whole lot of stuff to do. Anyway, the film is called lost soul, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's, uh, Island of Dr. Moreau is an amazing film. Please, please watch it. It's directed by David Gregory. It is great. Oftentimes the stories of things that didn't happen in Hollywood can tell us so much more about the thing itself than stories of success. And this is one of those cases. So I would definitely love to do Island of Dr. Moreau and this documentary. Uh, so thank you for that, Bernie. And Andy writes in, thanks for the podcast, such great stuff. It's like hanging out with a few really smart friends, which I don't seem to have. Oh, Andy, come on. I have friends, but no one's smart. <laughs> okay, Andy, well, listen, you and I are friends, right? We're podcast friends. Just don't show up at my house or do anything weird. You had me at all the president's men. I like 70 to 80% of the movies you review. Interesting. Okay, Andy. If you review more, here's my bucket list I'd love to see on your podcast. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, MASH, Patton, Dr. Strangelove, Platoon, War Games, Stripes, All the President's Men, strange since you just mentioned liking the episode about it, Three Days of the Condor, The Player, The Falcon and the Snowman, Children of Men, Planet of the Apes, Animal House, Best in Show, Big Lebowski, also did that on the pod. So I Married an Axe Murder, Foul Play, Caddyshack, Ghostbusters, Born Identity, Step into Liquid. Cheers, Andy. Cheers to you too, Andy. This is such a good list. I want to take them one by one. Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. You know what's weird? I love Redford. I love Newman. I love uh, 70s era Hollywood. Is it sacrilegious? to say that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is not that great when you revisit it. I mean, I've watched this a million times. It's always watchable. But there's just, I don't know. It's too cutesy. It's too self-convinced in a way. Like, I love The Sting more than I love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid if I wanted to watch those two guys. Probably wouldn't do it on the pod um, just because it doesn't really doesn't really get into my soul, but I know, you know, a lot of people love this movie so much. Um, I've probably seen it 20 times, so I can't imagine that it's got, I don't know. It just doesn't grab me. MASH, however, and I would love to do MASH. Um, as I said, went through the Altman phase, um, grew up watching the TV series and had that moment of 
kind of being so into the TV series as a kid and then experiencing the film and thinking there was going to be some similarity between these two and just getting the full acerbic persona-based performances of Sutherland and all of the people in the cast in the movie uh, was just such a mind-blowing experience as a kid. So I love that film. I love Sally Kellerman. I think she's brilliant. Um, and yeah, that would be worth doing. That's on the list. Patton is such an interesting choice. Almost watched that on the plane because it's like four hours plus. When else are you going to sit down and watch Patton? Dr. Strangelove has come up many times. Um, I do think that uh, Rick Brown, my frequent guest, and I are going to do Dr. Strangelove. Platoon, no. And the reason for that is kind of covered that ground when we did um, episodes relating to Michael Cimino and the deer hunter. And I did an episode where I revisited Apocalypse Now, the deer hunter, and Full Metal Jacket. And in that episode, I talked about the fact that Platoon is sort of the fourth of the big Vietnam Hollywood films, uh, but that to me, it really pales in comparison to those other three. It's much more a mass market, middle brow entertainment, dare I say, although it does have power and charm. But for me, uh, it's not worthy for me to kind of jump in and revisit. War Games, man. Way to bring up a sore topic, Andy. I guess you haven't listened in totality, but it's not your fault. Chris and I recorded an episode about war games that I loved. He and I were both so into the movie, and it's got such an interesting making of story. We recorded an amazing episode about this, and the next day Chris said, "Um, I hate to tell you this, but the computer ate the episode. It's gone. And so it's the one episode that never was on the pod. All the President's Men, again, did it on the pod. Uh, as you mentioned in your email, Andy. So please pay closer attention. Three Days of the Condor is interesting. It fits so many of the boxes. I guess I should say ticks so many of the boxes that I confess to being in love with on the pod. I have seen it multiple times. Uh, watch it just recently, you know, within the last year. And I love espionage. I love 70s era filmmaking. But... Something about it doesn't really hold together. The Player is a brilliant movie, and I'm going to need a super listener, Stacy, help here. I feel like I did The Player. Did I talk about The Player? I can't remember. <laughs> did I do an episode on The Player? Um, it would be embarrassing if I did and can't remember it. But I did also recently rewatch The Player, which is brilliant, brilliant Altman film. Um, I thought I did it on the pod, but maybe I just sort of talked about it a little bit in the Altman episode. Someone have to let me know. Hey, there's 137 episodes. You think I remember everything? This is somebody messaging me from work. Stop messaging me when I'm trying to record the podcast, even though you're trying to work. Okay. Um, let's get our, let's get our priorities straight here, Brian. Um, <clears throat> anyway, back to this question here, the list of movies. See, you screwed me up trying to conduct actual paying business when I'm trying to just do my podcast here. Ooh, Falcon and the Snowman. Fascinating suggestion. Damn. That's so 80s. Um, Timothy Hutton, Sean Penn. I'm into it. I'm totally into it. I don't know if it holds up. I'll be heartbroken if it doesn't, but I bet it's got amazing atmosphere. 
and I'm here for it. Children of Men, I remember loving that. It doesn't really fit into the vibe of the pod, so for that reason, I'm out. Planet of the Apes has come up a bunch. I think it's worth doing a Planet of the Apes. Animal House, I don't know what I could say that hasn't already been said. Best in Show, again, great. Just doesn't really fit the vibe of the pod. Big Lebowski, we did. So I Married an Axe Murder. That's a very intriguing suggestion. Am I missing something? Is that a good movie? I never saw it. Mike Myers, I think. Foul Play is a great idea. Caddyshack is a funny idea. Ghostbusters has come up. Bruce has wanted to do it. Um, I just don't feel strongly about the Ghostbusters universe. It never really did it for me. Again, I'm much more interested in things like Close Encounters. So I'd probably give Ghostbusters short shrift when maybe I shouldn't. Born Identity, again, doesn't really fit into the ethos of the pod. Step into Liquid, isn't a surfing documentary? That's interesting. Um, I'm trying to decide if Andy's saying cheers as in saying goodbye, or is he saying like cheers as in you should do the cheers TV series? Not sure. Either way, Andy, I'm going to say you were saying cheers as, as goodbye. Um, what else? Oh, here's some good ones. I can't remember who sent this one. I'm sorry. I didn't keep their, didn't keep their info, but here's some other suggestions. Um, oh, I wanted to read this cause this, this person mentioned something I really do want to do. Not wanting to mess or interfere with your busy schedule. Love, love. First of all, you got me right away with your brilliant approach. I mean, love the idea that I'm busy and the sheer politeness of not wanting to mess or interfere with it. When in fact, I'm thrilled to hear from you, whoever you are, whose name I didn't cut into the email when I cut and pasted your comment. I was wondering if you may in the future do an arts movie episode like Rivers and Tides, Baraka, Samsara, etc. Wow. Okay. Rivers and Tides. Yes. Uh, Andy Goldsworthy, I was blown away by this documentary when I saw it. It lives in my heart. It lives in my mind. It is a brilliant, brilliant film. His his works are incredible. I Actually, putting this together, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the Chuck Lavelle documentary in a way, because both of these people are similarly so humble and self-effacing and genuine that it's something to aspire to as a person if you tend to be a sardonic, sarcastic, uh, humor-encrusted person such as myself, moving awkwardly and uncomfortably through the world. When you see people who are so authentically and comfortably themselves, it just gives you something aspirational to aspire to. So Rivers and Tides is a great suggestion, and thank you for making it. Any chance of a Jim Jarmusch episode covering Down by Law, Mystery Train, and Fishing with John, the TV show? Those are some good suggestions too. I confess I'm not a huge Jim Jarmusch guy, not because I have any sort of dislike for it. I just never really went down the Jarmusch rabbit hole. Uh, I did love fishing with John and John Lurie. I have a John Lurie painting hanging in my office that I'm looking at right now, courtesy of my close friend and associate Ross, whose painting it actually is. But since he's not in the office, well, it lives on my wall for the moment. Uh, John Lurie is an amazing painter, by the way. If you just know him only through his music or through Fishing with John, look up his paintings. Stunning. Unbelievable. Um, so Jarmusch, I don't know. I'd have to check it out. I, I don't really have a strong inclination for it or reaction to it, so it's kind of outside my my worldview, but uh, you know, not closed down to it. Oh, and last but not least, could you do your magic and cover the Blues Brothers? Ooh, now you're talking. That's a suggestion. I'm going to add that to the list. 
I know it's not all possible, but as they say, if you don't ask. Many thanks again for the wonderful podcast. No, many thanks to you. And then he adds, oh, or a show on the movies of Dutch cinematographer Robbie Muller. Sorry, I really will leave you alone now. Now, is Robbie Muller, once again, doing this for the benefit of the one guy who hates it when I investigate and type things. Um, do I know Robbie Muller without thinking I know Robbie Muller? Ah, yes. Many, many films with Wim Wenders and Jarmusch, Bogdanovich, Lars von Trier. Okay. Scarlet Letter, Kings of the Road, American Friend. Uh, okay, I see it. Yes, I get you. Okay, this guy made a lot of amazing movies. Um, interesting. Okay, Robbie Mueller. Interesting to check out. Thank you. Um, Graham wrote in and said, have you guys done Collateral yet? Sometimes you get a very succinct response like this, and it just kind of blows your mind because you go, no, but I should. As you know, I went down the Michael Mann rabbit hole recently. Uh, did Heat, one of the best received episodes, which I was so reluctant to do. It was such a great um, aspect of doing a podcast like this is sometimes there's things you just don't think you should do because they're too close. They're too important to you. And you you end up doing it because you ended up watching the film and you realize you have some things to say. And of course, people respond to it, which is so funny because why wouldn't they when it's so genuine? But in your mind, you're thinking, I can't do that. It's just, there's so much to get into. But Anyway, Graham wrote in on the heels of that and said, have you done Collateral yet? And I haven't, but I really do want to rewatch Collateral. Um, I love that kind of move with Tom Cruise, with Jamie Foxx, both kind of cast unexpectedly. This is a big deal at the time. I think it's one of the first films that was done entirely in, in digital. And so it had a very different filmic palette. Uh, I do want to check out Collateral. Graham, thank you very much for the suggestion. I will check that out. Um. Cameron wrote in and said, hey, just want to say I've been enjoying your pod. Thank you, Cameron. I keep listening and wishing I could join the conversation. Well, you have. You and I are in conversation right now, Cameron. I'm currently listening to the Point Break episode. I love that movie. Me too, Cameron. I was about 14 when it came out, and the idea of surfers robbing banks was just about the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Last time I was in LA, I dragged my wife around to all the shooting locations. I can confirm shrimp and fries is legit on the menu at Neptune's in Malibu. Also, in regards to the hilarious shooting into the sky scene at the climax of the foot chase, I always believed it was a tactical move, as clearly Utah did have Bodhi in his sights and could have shot him. Indeed, that would have been FBI protocol not to let the suspect flee. And as we know from the opening scene, Johnny was a crack shot, so he had to fire his weapon to legitimize the chase in the eyes of his supervisor. Even Papa said, you shoot. You don't miss, kid. I guess Utah wasn't so dumb after all. P.S. I think 90s Kilmer could have worked as Bodhi. Okay, let's take the first part first. The shrimp and fries thing, yes. Um, I was shocked to have that confirmed. I believe my friend Ross confirmed it, who I just mentioned in relation to stealing his uh, his uh, John Lurie painting. I think he knows Neptunes in Malibu and can confirm that shrimp and fries is a thing. So, okay. Secondly, Cameron, this brilliant deconstruction of the shooting into the sky sequence, I'm so right on with your analysis. Um, I never really stopped to think about why he did that. I just always thought it was sort of an acknowledgement of the 
sort of rage that he felt that he knew he couldn't take Bodhi down and didn't want to take Bodhi down and was conflicted in regards to his job. But you've, you've actually laid it out so perfectly here um, that your description is going to now become mine. Whenever, as I often do, I find myself in deep critical discussion about how good point break is with people who just don't get it. And there's so many people like that, and I feel sorry for them because they're really missing out. Now, as to your third point, 90s Kilmer could have worked as Bodhi. Wow. That's kind of a mind-blowing suggestion. I think you're probably right. I do think however iconic Swayze is, and he is iconic. I mean, that is that is acting. I mean, it's one of the greatest acting performances because real Swayze really has none of those personality traits or complications. So it's a real embodiment of a role that does not really have anything to do with who this classically trained ballet artist from Texas really was. But man, 90s Kilmer as Bodhi, I'm totally with you. That would be cool. Uh, and again, glad Kilmer's having a bit of a moment. So anyway, that's this week's pretty much admittedly rambling and kind of off-the-cuff episode, which is cobbled together just because I'm between films. I'm, I'm preparing for something that I'm going to do this week, uh, which is going to be released uh, after Halloween next week, and preparing for a couple of other things. But I did want to just catch up with a few viewer mail incidents and let you know to continue to feel free to reach out. If you're new to the podcast, there's an episode just for you. It's called If You're New to the Pod Start Here. I believe it's episode 125. And do me a favor. I'm never going to make you listen to ads on the pod or pay a Patreon fee or any of that kind of stuff. The only thing I ask is just next time you're on like Apple Podcasts, hit me with a five-star review. You don't have to write anything. Just hit the five stars. Couldn't be easier, right? Oh, the reason I was mentioning the guy who talks about the sound of typing, I should probably call it up because it's kind of funny. Um, yeah, I, I do read some of the reviews that get posted. Unfortunately, most of the people that seem inclined to post word reviews, like tend to be not, not all of them. Of course, I'm just singling out some of the negative ones because they're funny, but I would say most of them are, you know, four or five star reviews, funny, informative, funny, and thoughtful, entertaining, makes me want to see more movies. But then the funny ones are of course the terrible ones the ones that give you one star. Uh, one guy, oh, this guy says, initially I thought this was an intriguing podcast. However, after listening to half a dozen episodes, I discovered it's just a platform for arrogance, elitism, and in-show Googling. And incredibly off the mark factually. Save yourself the time. Well, listen, Anonymous, who, by the way, gave me two stars. <laughs> As ever, it's so much more fascinating when you get into the one two-star thing, like, one star is the least star you could give. So I get that. But this guy, I'm assuming it's a guy who takes the time to write actually this sort of, I'm not going to say thoughtful because it's kind of wrong, like not incredibly off the mark factually. I'm, I don't really, I'm not going to cop to that. You know, anyone can get anything wrong, of course, in any episode. And we're talking about film history and people who reminisce about things and there maybe is no one right or true story of anything, but I mean, I do my homework. I pride myself on that. But what I, what I love most about this is that it's a platform for in-show Googling. <laughs> well, isn't in-show in Googling one of the antidotes to being incredibly off the mark factually? So un, unknown, sir, not sure you can both have that cake and eat it too, but thank you for the two stars. That, that's the most brilliant part of that review. I love that. Um, I want to read you some other 
some other funny ones. Uh, here's another one. Are you sure you love these movies? I'm listening to the Wrath of Khan episode, and this is what annoys me about most podcasts that discuss films. The host always seems so thrilled to discuss a certain film, then he and the guests spend most of the time mocking the source material. For example, talking about shooting rumors that... Hold on, I'm losing the rest of it. Talking about shooting rumors, like, anyway, I, I can't remember. I can't get the rest of his email. But uh, anyway, he's, he's, he's annoyed that I mentioned the rumor... It's not a rumor, in fact. It's, uh, it's been discussed by many people. There's the rumor that the director, Nick Meyer, sort of dressed up in a Sherlock Holmes costume on the day of the death of Spock sequence. Um, you can look up a lot of stuff about Nicholas Meyer. You can make up your own mind. Um, but again, what's great is this person also gives two stars, which is great. I love that. Thank you. How about some one-star reviews? Hard pass. I made it 30 seconds into my first episode before the podcasters started bashing my political party and their supporters. Nope. Delete. That's a one-star review. Here's another one. Is this supposed to be funny? I don't get this. It's not informative and it's not funny either. It doesn't know what it wants to be. One guy is okay, but the other guy is trying way too hard and seems to love hearing himself talk. Clearly that's me. I had a hard time telling their voices apart too. Worst of all, it's just boring. Not recommended. One star. Wow. I've never felt more seen, sir. Anyway, you know, when you rent a room, 100 people, 99 love you, one doesn't, you fixate on the one. That's my version of that. Just reading you some of the comedic one star and really appreciating the two star reviews. Now, let's not, let's hope this doesn't turn into a thing and you all leave a bunch of two star reviews because apparently I'm supposed to ask for like, you know, my, my Apple rating to be above 4.6 for some sort of algorithmic reason. I don't, I don't fucking know. But if you like the pod, give me what you feel is an appropriate star rating. You don't have to write anything. You don't have to go that far. But I guess just clicking to rate the pod is a help and appreciated. So thank you very much as ever for listening. And uh, thank you for letting me get away with making an episode out of basically nothing this week. I will do some uh, additional Googling and be back next week with a brand new episode of the Full Cast and Crew podcast. <laughs>